Okay, let's open with a word of prayer, please. Our great Father, we do come before you this morning with humility and to give you worship and praise. Lord, we're so thankful for the body of Christ and the fellowship that we have therein, just a joy to be able to come together. And so, Father, we thank you for that privilege this morning. We thank you for the privilege to open your scriptures and to study them and to hopefully gain understanding. And, Lord, we understand that in ourselves and by our power we can't do that, but through your Holy Spirit who indwells us, Lord, please illumine your scriptures that we might have understanding. And Father, thank you that the pen of Daniel so long ago wrote uh, about things that are pertinent to our lives today that are still yet to be done, some of them. And so, Lord, uh, help us to gain that understanding and may it shape our worldview and the way we think about all that's going on today. Lord, may you use that not only to give us understanding, but to provide comfort and expectation within us that our thoughts might be congruent with what your word teaches. So, Lord, our desire this morning is to give you worship and praise and honor. Amen. So this is week number 41 in our study of the book of Daniel, and once again we're over in chapter 9 and verse 24, hoping to finish this verse this morning, won't make any promises, but that's my aim, and that's my goal. You remember in this verse, Gabriel first tells Daniel that there are 70 weeks have been decreed. Um, by God Almighty for, for certain things to be accomplished. And then Gabriel goes on to name six things that will be accomplished within those 70 weeks. And we've noted the first four of those. Those were to make an end of sin, to um, finish the transgression that the Jews were involved in, still are involved in, to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. And so these four things all pertain, as Gabriel said, to the Jews and to Jerusalem. Doesn't mean other people won't be affected, but Gabriel is speaking to Daniel specifically about Jerusalem and the people who dwell there. And so these six things that are accomplished are not done by man or by his ingenuity or his power because only the creator has the right and the might to declare things that will happen in his creation and then to cause them or at least orchestrate them to come to be. And so these are all things, all six of them are things that God does and that he'll do, you know, a lot of the deists say that God just wound up the creation and he's letting it unwind. Well, this verse speaks against that because these are six things that God intervenes in human history and causes to happen. And so he hasn't just wound it up and let it go. Um, he's in complete control. And so we've seen that in, these, in the first four. Today we move into the 
the fifth of these accomplishments, and that is to seal up vision and prophecy. And if we looked at the literal translation of that, it would be to seal up vision and prophet, meaning the person, the prophet. So, um, but I think prophecy is a, is a fine way to think about it. And so we have to try and understand what he means by seal up vision and, and the prophet. And, you know, one of the synonyms for seal would be to close something um, and, and put a, a lid on it, if you would. Um, we have these bowls at my house that you, if you want to put something in the refrigerator, you pull them into this bowl and then it has a rubber seal on it and it even then has additional snaps that you snap in place. And once you've snapped it in place, it's sealed so that no air can go in and no air can come out. And um, you know that it's sealed because when you try to open that bowl, it becomes very difficult to get those snaps to go back. Um, my fingers being somewhat aged, um, sometimes has trouble with that. Uh, have to get a fork out or a spoon out to try and undo those snaps. So you know that it's sealed. And so that's one way to think about seal and to put a lid on something to cover it, to don't let it out, don't let anything in. But I don't think that's the synonym that is being spoken of here. Um, because if that was the case, then we would not be able to read this today and gain any understanding from it because it would be sealed up. It would be closed in. And now these things are to be accomplished within the 70 weeks. We know that. So does that mean that all prophecy is going to be shut down in, during these 70 weeks? And I don't, I don't think so um, because that doesn't go with our understanding of what we've been looking at. So you have to to continue to think about this and what else could it, could it possibly mean. We've seen this same kind of statement in Daniel before, back over in chapter 8 and verse 26, when um, this is the vision of the ram and the goat. And at the very end of it, in verse 26, Scripture reads, the vision of the evenings and mornings which has, which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Now this is a specific word to Daniel. Obviously he didn't keep it a very good secret if he wrote it down, right? And if you look in your, depending on what kind of, um, scripture you have um, that pertains to future or many days or whatever is probably italicized, meaning they kind of added that so you could gain understanding, but is that what it really means? Um, so Daniel specifically told to seal it up, and then later we'll see another one over in 12.4 where the similar kind of thing is told to Daniel in 12.4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. All right, so seal it up. First, because it pertains to many days from now. And then here in 
seal it up because it's talking about the end of time. So meaning that what's written in the book of Daniel will be accomplished at the end of time. Not that it's never going to happen, not that it's going to be sealed up and nobody will know what this is. That's, I don't think that makes any sense to what it's saying because at the end of time, you're going to be able to read this book and you're going to be able to look at what's happening and they will be the same because these things that Daniel has written pertain to the future or many days from now or to the end of time. So uh, to seal it up mean put a lid on it and make it where you can't see it. Well, if there's any relationship between Daniel and Revelation, and I think there is, and we'll see that in spades when we, if the Lord wills, and we get to Revelation, and we reference back to things that we've seen in, in Daniel specifically, many, many references back into Daniel if there's any relationship, then over in Revelation 22.10, John's told to do the exact opposite of put a lid on it and seal it up and make it secret and where nobody can know what's supposed to happen. Because in 22.10 of Revelation, there the final message to John, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. So we'll see that the things in Daniel correspond to the things in Revelation. So in around the first century, late in the first century when John's writing this book, that time is near. The end of times is near. So we know it's been, what, 2,100 years? since John wrote these words. So that's uh, different than the way I think of near. But in God's perspective, you know, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. It's been a couple of days from God's perspective. So not a long time. And so, but John's told to open it up. Don't, don't cover it up. Leave it uncovered. And this is written about 550 years, maybe 600 years after the book of Daniel is written. So it, is, it has been a while. And so when God speaks to Daniel and tells him that during these 70 weeks, the accomplishment of to seal vision and prophecy will be accomplished. So it can't mean to hide it. Because that would mean you hide it until the very end of time. And you never disclose it. And so that's not what it's talking about. So what is it talking about? Well, there's um, another way to think about seal up things. And we use this term sometimes to speak of actions that we see happening and it's to bring a conclusion to something, to make it happen. You know, we, we talk about things that happened and you want to get beyond them. You want to um, have them in the past and you want to be able to move on with life 
when something significant happens in your life and you, you don't want to just get stuck and be able to continue to move forward. So um, seal up can mean closure, that you want to bring something to a conclusion. That, that would be a, a right way to think about sealing up something. You want to bring it to a, a final end. And so I think that's probably the synonym that basically uh, is what he's trying to say here. It's not that you want to cover it up and nobody can see it, but you want to bring it to closure, which would mean that all these things have to be accomplished. Not only here in the book of Daniel that we've already seen in the visions of the previous chapters, and even this word that's being spoken to now, now to Daniel about the 70 weeks, that you want to get to the end of the 70 weeks, that you want to have closure on what's being disclosed here. So I think that's what he means when he says seal up the vision and the prophet. If, if that all happened within the 70 weeks, then there'd be no longer a need for a prophet. There'd no longer be a need for any prophecy because it would all have been accomplished that it has been prophesied. And so to seal it up, to bring it to a closure, to bring it to conclusion within the 70 weeks. So what that would mean is that everything that has been prophesied, especially here to Daniel, comes to complete conclusion within the 70 weeks. There's nothing left to be done. Now we know that Revelation speaks about a time beyond the 70 weeks. It talks about eternity in the end state where there's a new heaven and a new earth and um, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the literal earth and that people go in and out of the city because we're in the eternal state and God and Jesus Christ dwell there on their thrones and there's no need for a sun or for a moon because they are the light of the city. We, we know these things from the last chapters of Revelation, but you have to realize that wasn't revealed here when Gabriel's talking to Daniel. He's only talking about things that pertain to Jerusalem and the Jews, and that eternal state pertains to more than just the Jews, more than just the city Jerusalem. It includes all those who ever place faith in Jesus Christ. So not appropriate to say that to Daniel here, because Gabriel specifically says this is talking about the Jews in Jerusalem. And so he doesn't disclose that. That's later disclosed to John in progressive revelation, and we get the very end state. So this is the end of times of human history, is what he's talking about here. And so within these 70 weeks, by the time you get to the end of the 70th week, all the prophecy that Daniel knew about has been completed. All the prophecy in this, in this um, prophecy given to Daniel by Gabriel is completed within the 70 weeks. So I think that's the right way to think about this seal up vision and prophecy is that it's talking about all these things will be concluded within the 70 weeks. And you know, here in verse 24, we get the six accomplishments that will happen within the 70 weeks. The next three verses, which are the full vision 
that Gabriel gave to Daniel are just actions of how these things are accomplished. There's no, I mean, this verse contains the prophecy and all the things that are going to happen. The other three verses just describe the actions that make these things happen. So this is the important verse, if you're going to get this interpretation right, is to understand these six things and what they are and what they mean and make them, they, they can't stand alone and fly in the face of what's written in Revelation about opening up the prophecy. It, it can't contradict that. That's you know, not proper way to understand the scriptures. They never contradict one another. So they have to complement. And so I believe the seal up vision and prophecy means bring all these things to a conclusion, have closure on them, get beyond them. They're all been done. So at the end of the 70 week, when you look back, you can see all these things having been accomplished. And we know that, I mean, we've already talked about this, that two of the ones that we've looked at were accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. The next one we'll see is accomplished right after the cross of Jesus Christ. And then um, the other three are to be accomplished still in the future in the 70 weeks. So um, the, the last one that's given in verse 24, the other one that's accomplished just after the cross of Jesus Christ, I believe, is to anoint the most holy place. Now, if you're Daniel and someone tells you to anoint the most holy place, remember Daniel grew up in the reign of Josiah. And so he saw the temple, the one that Solomon built. And he saw it in all its glory before the Babylonians destroyed it, before it was rebuilt, a pitiful symbol of what it had been before. And so Daniel, in his mind, he's seen this done. He hadn't literally been there, but he's seen the activities of to anoint the most holy place. The Jews do this on Yom Kippur um, on the 10th day of the new year on the day that we speak of as the Day of Atonement. Uh, they don't do it today because there's no temple and there's no holy place. But there was, as Daniel was growing up, uh, it goes all the way back to the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to build, that there would be a room that was set off with a veil in front of it from another room that held the, uh, the tables, the altar of incense, there's something else in there. The lampstands are in this outer room. And then you go through the veil and you come to the room that has the Ark of the Covenant in it. And that's called the Holy of Holies. And the outer room is called the Holy Place. And they together make up the sanctuary, the place where God dwells. God literally dwelt in the tabernacle and in the temple of Solomon, literally dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the high priest would go in there, um, taking the blood of the scapegoat, and he would sprinkle it on the altar, first for himself, 
so that he might be cleansed, and then for all the sins that Israel had committed that previous year in ignorance, meaning <clears throat> if you committed a sin and it was obvious <clears throat> to you, then you were to take a sacrifice, a burnt offering, and to cover that sin, and you did that regularly. But if you had done something in ignorance, you didn't realize you had done it or whatever, that's what this was for, was to cover the sins that Israel had done in ignorance for the whole year. And so the high priest would go in on Yom Kippur and offer this sacrifice. He would sprinkle the altar. And so that's what would be in Daniel's mind, is this very um, precise procedure that had to be done in order to cleanse Israel of their sins. And so he would associate with anointing the most holy place as that one day a year and the forgiveness of sins by God of Israel. That's what would be in Daniel's mind. But I don't believe that's what's being spoken of here because there was a time after Daniel for a few hundred years where they continued this altar and this sacrifice. We'll see it, um, if the Lord wills, next week when uh, expeditions are led back into Israel and they rebuild the temple. And the first thing they build is the altar uh, so they can offer sacrifices. So, and then that went on until, you know, we saw it when uh, Antiochus came in that he stopped all that for a while, seven, for seven years, and then they restarted that under the Hasmonean dynasty all the way into the time of the Jews until 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, and they haven't done it since then because there is no temple, there is no altar today. So the Ark of the Covenant is somewhere, hadn't been destroyed, don't know where it is, they'll find it in the uh, last days because they begin these sacrifices again. And you see them in the book of Revelation, you see them in this, in the next three verses of Daniel, you see them. So toward the end, they find the Ark of the Covenant, they find the ashes of the red heifer that is needed to restart the sacrifices, and they do restart them. A temple is rebuilt, because um, you've got to have a temple in order to have a holy place and a most holy place and the Ark of the Covenant in there. So all these things, while we think of them and the Jews think of them, for the most part, as historical, done away with, never going to see them again, I don't think so. I think they'll reappear. They'll be on the scene in the last days. Yeah. Right. Right, for the Jews. So that they can see that, that he has fixed this event in the end. 
That's right. That's right. I mean, we should be looking. We should be comparing the scripture. And so we'll know. It doesn't say no one will know what's happening. Okay, we have that idea, right? That nobody knows about any of this. We don't know the day when Jesus is coming again. That's what we don't know. But when these things play out, there will be people who understand, oh, this is what was written in the book and revealed by God through his prophets. You know, you think about it, Isaiah is amazing because Isaiah is a couple hundred years before Daniel is written. And so did Isaiah have an idea, uh, a vague one, of what he was writing about? Um, he, he, he desired, the book of Peter says, to, he desired to understand these things, but God didn't give him that. Yeah, Isaiah 8 and 11 basically saying, gain understanding, read these things, Com comprehend them so that you will know and that you will be thinking and controlling your emotions and your reactions appropriately. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, I don't believe in a lot of the psychobabble that you hear all the time, but the scripture says, don't react emotionally, act rationally. So, and, and people all the time act out of emotion. That's where you tend to sin. But if you think about things rationally and you respond rationally, then you're much more calm and you think it through. And so that's what the scripture tells us to do. I mean... Don't act emotionally, act rationally. So we're trying to be rational about all this. Um, you know, we saw the temple of God in the book of Ezekiel. You remember during the millennial kingdom. And confusingly, on first look, they offer sacrifices. They have burnt offerings. They minister before the Lord. Why in the world would you need sacrifices when the final sacrifice has been done? And it's to commemorate, to honor Jesus Christ and his final sacrifice, to remember it. So we, we see the sacrifices in the Mosaic Law. We see them during the time of Moses. We see them throughout the history of Jerusalem until the temple was destroyed. We see them in the rebuilt temple. These sacrifices go on, and ultimately, at the end of times, they'll be sacrificing, and then even in the Millennial Kingdom they'll be sacrificing. So these things are not just historical. And God gave them so they would be there for all times until the final eternal state, and then we have God himself face to face. And you don't need a reminder because everything's been accomplished. So um, and you remember that temple in um, 
in the Millennial Kingdom that only the uh, Zadokian um, priests could go in there, those who descended from Zadok. Um, we'll see that um, in Ezra. You have the same thing, that only the Zadokian priests are allowed to minister close to God. So that's, all, that's been established since the time Israel went strayward and Zadok stayed faithful. And so from that point on, you narrow down the Levites to just those who are sons of Zadok. So uh, anyway, there's a lot in all these things. Now, so what is, what is meant by this statement that Gabriel gives to Daniel to anoint the most holy place? It's, it, you know, Jesus Christ lived while the sacrificial system was in place. It was ongoing all through his life. And so he would have seen these rituals and never went in the holy place because he's not a Levite. But, you know, where we see it in the New Testament is when Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, goes into the Holy of Holies to offer on Yom Kippur this one sacrifice for all the Jews. And who is there to greet him? The same Gabriel is the one who spoke to John the Baptist in the, um, in the Holy of Holies. And so he knows what he's talking about because he's been there. He, um, you remember John the Baptist comes out and can't speak? So he begins to write things, and they were going to call his name John after his dad, and he said, no, his name will be called Jesus, right, wrote it down so they could see it. All of that story um, goes right to what's being spoken of here. Now, Jesus Christ never went into the Holy of Holies in the temple. So it can't be talking about that, not that temple. And so nowhere is it explained better than in Hebrews chapter 9. So instead of trying to uncover this and talk through it, I thought I would just read Hebrews 9. Because you'll see, this is an explanation of what Gabriel told to Daniel <coughs> about anoint the holy place, the holy of holies. So Hebrews chapter 9 now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all its sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot, cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood of which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, 
that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed till a time of reformation. Okay, so then those first 10 verses, he well explains the Old Testament sacrificial system and what was in place um, during the writer of Hebrews' life up until 70 AD. He would have seen these things. He would have understood these things. He would have known about these things. But then he goes on, and the whole tenor changes. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now there's the crux. If Jesus Christ was not sacrificed and did not take his own blood into the holy of holies to sprinkle the holy place that is not of this creation, meaning is heavenly, if he did not do that, there is no redemption. Doesn't exist. And so it's necessary to understand that Jesus Christ gave his life on a cross, died and sprinkled the holy of holies in heaven before God with his own blood. This is what all of creation was pointed towards. It was this act given in these two verses. And if he did not do that, then there is no eternal redemption. Okay, he goes on. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is made the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption and transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For when a covenant, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant, covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and the scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, 
but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, will appear a second time for salvation without a reference to sin for those who eagerly await him. I mean, could it be any more clear? Could the writer of Hebrews given us any more understanding than is given right there? Can you just imagine all the angels looking have been waiting for this since the original creation and Jesus Christ goes before God into the Holy of Holies and sprinkles the altar with his own blood. I mean, can you just imagine that scene? This is what all of history is about. And he says, this has already been done. This isn't to be done in the future. Jesus Christ did this when he ascended back to the Father, took his own blood. You know, and I don't know when he did it. I don't know if he did it during those three days or if he waited until he went back to the Father um, 40 days later. Don't know exactly how all that played out, but this I know is that he did this and all the angels were in awe. All the Old Testament saints were in awe of what Jesus Christ did. It's what all of history is about. They've been waiting since the very creation. And so there's a true tabernacle in heaven where the presence of God dwells today. And the things that Moses set up, that God prescribed that he set up, were just a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ was going to do. That priest going in there year after year was just pointing toward the cross of Christ so that he would go before God in the true holy of holies made without hands. So when God made all of this, he also made that made without hands, and Jesus Christ accomplished this final six description given in chapter 9 and verse 24. It's already been done. This is the third of the six that have already been completed by Jesus Christ in his sacrifice on the cross and what he did shortly thereafter. Right. The word of God, the law of God, the cherubim, and the atonement. Yeah. Those are the four primary things we see. And God has essentially given us all of the finished points of those, except 
except for the word of God which we have today right now in our lives. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, <laughs> this is the ceiling of all prophecy, is it not? Not much else matters beyond this sixth point. This is why, this is where Gabriel starts. He says, Daniel, there's 70 weeks that have been decreed, and these things will be accomplished during those 70 weeks, and this is it. And then these marvelous things that only God can do, just laid out one after the other after the other. Only the angels from the word of God could contain so much truth in so few words spoken by Gabriel to Daniel, literally standing before him. Stark, I mean, it's just, I, how, how can, you can't explain this, right? It's just beyond what we can fully appreciate and comprehend. We understand what it says, but the awe of Jesus Christ going with his own blood before the Father, and the Father accepting that as atonement for my sins, I don't think I have quite appreciate that to the point that I'm in just struck in awe at all times. I should be, but we don't think about this. We don't think about this action so often. But, I mean, the writer of Hebrews, I, I don't know how more explicit he could have been about what Jesus Christ did. So this is the sixth thing. To anoint the most holy place has nothing to do with earthly things, other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. David, I wanted to, you, you talked through this, but you know where, where Caesar says that the Lord would have proclaimed yeah. to the devils yeah. who were, were contained? To me, it makes perfectly logical sense that he had already gone into the Holy of Holies, completed the work of atonement, and now was proclaiming that very truth to those demons who were not even able to yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. But the scripture doesn't tell us when it was done. It just tells us it was done. And so we know that is factual. And, you know, and that, that thought of Jesus Christ going and proclaiming into all the depths of hell so that all of them could hear him. Proclaiming. That doesn't mean just whispering it. or say, I mean, it means to shout it. So Jesus Christ himself went into Sheol and shouted to all of those demons and all the, um, well, we'll just leave it at that, to, uh, that they knew at that point that he had overcome death. Leaving no thing in the created order, unaware right. of what Christ has accomplished. That's right. That's right. And so, <laughs> yet they still side with Satan and think they can beat him in the end. That's that's in their mind. That's what they are working towards. That's what the corruption of the world is all about. And yet, if he could do this, and he could go and tell them that he did this, then there is no possibility that God will lose, right? Because he's the sovereign one. He's the one that created those evil beings. So anyway, those are the six things. So, if the Lord wills, next week we move on to verse 25, having spent a long time in verse 24. But well worth it to understand what God has decreed.
will be done. Three of them are accomplished. Three of them are yet to be done. So thanks for your time this morning.